I'm going to tell Jared to pick different songs next time. I'm, oh, my voice is already gone. Anyway, good morning, church. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, as we're going to be continuing our sermon series that really has stretched over in a year and a half, almost two years, and it's going to take us through the early part of this year right up into Easter. And if you remember just last week, Chad restarted the series and worked through the first few verses of chapter 11, where he discussed the first day of the Passion Week, this really exciting kind of mountaintop day where Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies, right? He's coming into Jerusalem. He's coming in through the east gate. He's riding the donkey. The, the people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. And we learn that Jesus ends that day in a little bit of a peculiar way. He kind of comes into Jerusalem and he looks around and then he leaves. He goes back to Bethany where he's staying for rest and recovery. And, and today we're going to continue in that story. Um, and Lord willing, we're going we're to finish the rest of chapter 11, um, which frankly I think is unfair. Um, Chad only had to cover 11 verses. I have to cover 22 verses. I expect all of you will confront him about this and say, hey, Chad, you know, I was looking at my Bible. Man, you only covered like one little heading. Greg had to cover like four headings. That's a lot of headings. So anyway, we're going to give it the good old college try. But if it's too bad and I never preach again, you know it was really Chad's fault. So read with me starting in verse 12. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree covered with leaves... He went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. They went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus replied to him, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that the Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, Well, I'll ask you a question and then answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I've been doing these things. 
Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, and they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we we, we come before you this morning in awe of your grace and love and provision, that you are our living hope. You are so good to us and have lavished on us such unthinkable blessings, and yet we don't love you the way that we should. We so often look to our own strength and wisdom to guide and orient our lives. We're foolish. And we beg of you that you will strip us of that foolishness. We ask that you would help us to hear the message of your Son this morning in the book of Mark, and that your Holy Spirit would penetrate our sinful hearts and make us doers of your word and not just hearers. We pray that you would strip away our shiny exteriors and let us live amongst each other, faithfully pursuing a life of true worship, of worship in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1927, um, this famous mathematician and philosopher named Bertrand Russell wrote an essay called Why I Am Not a Christian. And within that essay, he lays out a a number of objections to the Bible, but specifically some criticisms of the person and work of Jesus. Amongst those, he says, there's no way we can read the gospel accounts and believe that Jesus was actually powerful and actually good. I mean, if that was true, just look at some of of the things he did. He talks about in Mark chapter 4, where he sends the demons into the pigs and sends the pigs into the sea, destroying them. And he talks about this passage. He describes Jesus' actions here like a temper tantrum. It's like, this is just mean. This is petty. This isn't in line with a perfect and powerful character that he's ascribed to himself. And I think if we're really honest, that, that's an easy trap to fall into when we see this passage. As my good friend Josh Dawes said, it just kind of seems like Jesus is hangry. But he is hungry, and he does think that there may be fruit on this tree, and he, it does seem that he lashes out at first. But if we hold that Jesus was without sin, and we certainly hold to that belief at Grace, that belief at Grace Bible Church, then we have to go deeper. We have to ask a few more questions. We have to try to understand what's really going on here. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. This is Jesus. He spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness with no food, no water, and at the other side of that, he's tempted by Satan, and he still has the strength, he still has the fortitude, he still has the clarity to frankly tell Satan to take a hike. And he can't deal with walking into Jerusalem without without eating these figs. It just doesn't make sense. And while it has certainly perplexed the number of biblical scholars throughout the years how this actually works, we've kind of settled on one of two explanations. And lucky for us, they kind of both point us in the same direction, so I'll talk through both. You pick your favorite, I'll pick mine. We can compare notes later. 
The first is that fig trees don't just grow figs right away. At first, they grow these kind of hard buds called pagin. And while you would never pick them and take them to market or try to get all the pagin, you could eat them. And it was really common for travelers to pick and eat them at certain times of the year because it was sustenance, it was available. So many people have come to Jesus' defense um, saying, hey, he was just going to find these pagin, and he didn't, or he had every right to believe it wasn't going to produce figs, that it was a barren tree. The second is that when you look at the agricultural landscape of that time and that place, turns out there's not just one kind of fig tree. There's like a dozen kinds of fig trees that grow figs at all different kinds of the year, all different times of the year. But there were just a few that were grown in order to harvest figs for sale at market, and that defined the fig season. So as you're traveling through the countryside, as you're looking at whether or not you can pick figs from an individual tree, you don't care about the season. Because that's just talking about what's in the, in the fields. You look and you see if the tree has leaves. Because figs always grow, or fig trees always grow their fruit before their leaves come all the way in. So when we read in verse 12, seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, and he walks up to the fig tree and he finds nothing, nothing but leaves, we know that Jesus didn't find a tree out of season. Jesus didn't find a tree and curse it because it was just the wrong time of the year. He finds the tree and he curses it because, because it has all the exterior signs of a healthy fruit-bearing tree. Because it has all the exterior signs that he should be able to come to it and find fruit. And while Jesus had many roles and powers and efforts and purposes on earth, one of those purposes, one of those powers, one of those, one of those roles was as a prophet. And he is pulling out the oldest trick in the Old Testament prophet book, which is I'm going to take something really familiar to the people of Israel. I'm going to take something that they know and understand and connect to. After all, Israel had been called the fig tree of the Lord in the Old Testament. Hosea, Jeremiah, they would have known all about this. And I'm going to connect that back to something happening in the hearts of the people. It's not on accident that Jesus finds this tree and curses it on the way to the temple. He finds this tree and he curses it because the temple is a fig tree with leaves but no fruit. It has this shiny exterior. It has all the signs that you should be able to go in and find fruit. It has all the they're working hard, right? They're doing the sacrifices. They're following the rules. They're scrambling to display righteousness. But it's an empty righteousness. It is a fruitless righteousness. Hmm. Read with me here. They, they came to Jerusalem and he, he went into the temple and he began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned 
the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and, and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations? But you, you have made it a den of thieves. So let's just break down a little bit um, what's going on here, right? So he comes into the temple. It's the week of Passover. There would have been a bunch of people there because under Jewish law, they were obligated to come to Jerusalem for Passover, for these sacrifices. And so, some would come from far enough away that it just wasn't feasible to, to bring the animals with them. They needed access to animals for sacrifice after they got to Jerusalem. And so this practice started as a way to serve the people, as a way to make it easier to remove barriers to connecting with the Lord in this way. But by this time, we learn from the historian Josephus that it was not uncommon to pay four or five times the typical price for one of these animals. And to make it worse, you had to buy it in the currency used there in Jerusalem. And while you may travel and expect to pay 2 to 3% when you exchange your money, they would have paid close to 50% just to get their currency into the currency of Jerusalem and then pay these extremely high prices. This was pure extortion. This is a betrayal. Think about it. This is the house of the Lord. This is the temple. This is the earthly dwelling place of Yahweh, but it's been twisted. It's been contorted into a temple, a temple in service of greed. A temple in service of profit at the expense of the very people that it was supposed to bring close to the Lord. The very people that it was supposed to show the love of God. Now, they would have never accepted this sort of stuff in the inner workings of the temple, right? This temple had four kind of chambers or parts, if you will, going from kind of the Holy of Holies all the way at one side, going, stepping down in significance into this, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. And I call that out because, right, these are people coming from the nations to Jerusalem to be blessed. And this is the court built and designed specifically to fulfill the promise and the prophecy that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to all nations. And it's become a curse to all nations. It's become a curse to the very people it was supposed to serve. And frankly, Jesus was just not having it. And while it's easy for us to look at them and criticize them, they certainly deserve it. And while it's and while I don't think we have a lot of churches, certainly not churches that we would attend that are purposefully stealing people's money, I do think we should be careful. I do think we should think really deeply about our own hearts with respect to this dynamic, with respect to this shiny exterior, barren interior. Because how many of you are going to go to Life Group this week a little bit afraid to talk about your sin. How many of you are going to hide just a little bit? How many of you are going to hold something back? How many of you are trying really hard to tell the people around you, don't be ashamed of your sin? 
How many of you are really loving your brothers and sisters by actively creating an environment where we can celebrate the fruit in our lives and fight hard against the pieces of our lives where there is no fruit in a loving, caring, hopeful way? I think we put a lot of pressure on each other. I think we put a lot of pressure on each other to act more righteous than we really are. I think it's too common that we think and get caught up in the leaves and not in the fruit. And Mark is telling us that that is a big deal. That is re- we got to be really careful about that. Jesus is really serious. Look at, look at verse 20. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, the su- they saw the fig tree, and it was withered from the roots up. Jesus doesn't just remove the leaves. Jesus doesn't hurt the outside of this tree. There's no like, no, maybe it's going to come back next year. Maybe there's going to be some figs next time we come through. No. It is destroyed from the foundation, from the roots. So I would call you to think really deeply about the fruit in your life. Think deeply about the areas where you are chasing a life that would be glorifying to God, but also the areas that are fruitless. Also the spaces that you want to hide. Think about the times that I do it, we all do it, where you pull out that Christianese dictionary and you just say all the right things to make it seem like it's all good. When it's not. I want you to think deeply about the way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The way that we... Yeah, the way that we help each other to do that well. But then what do we do? How do we respond? You're like, hey, go find these spaces. Think really deeply. What do I do about it? I get it. It's a big deal. Jesus is all angry. What does that change? What do I do about it? And I think if we look really close at what Jesus does once he's in the temple, that becomes obvious. So if you're anything like me, right? You think about these times when Jesus cleanses the temple. So we got like John 2, early in his ministry, Matthew 21 and Mark 11, late in his ministry, where he comes in and he turns over the tables, right? And you think, like, right, it can't be a room, it's not a room this big, it's got to be bigger than that. But maybe it's like a big church. So, you know, there's four or five tables over here with the money changers, there's like cages of doves in the back, there's a pen over here, it's 50, 100 lambs. Like Jesus comes in, turns over the tables, talks to a few people, cracks his whip, and that's it. Anybody want to guess how big the court of the Gentiles was? Not quite. Anybody want to guess how many lambs they would have slaughtered? Guys, the court of Gentiles was the size of 17 football fields. They would have slaughtered 250,000 lambs this this week. And I think that's really important because it reveals that Jesus is not throwing a temper tantrum. Jesus is not walking in and doing something quickly and getting out. This would have taken him all day. Matthew says he has time to take a break, sit down, and weave a whip, and then go back at it. We see in verses 18 and 19, he has time to lock down the whole area and not let people come in and out. He has time to go table by table, teaching and instructing. 
This is not quick. It's acute. It's intense. There's anger there. But it is deliberate. Yes, God is angry with sin. Jesus is angry at these people. God is angry when we use him and his commandments and his teaching for our own personal gain, whether that be monetary or whether it be relational, which I think we're much more tempted to do. But God's anger is not like our anger. John Calvin says this, From the other side, we see that God, while not ceasing to love his children, is wondrously angry towards them. Not because he's disposed of himself to hate them, but because he would frighten them by the feeling of his wrath in order to humble their fleshly pride, to shake off their sluggishness, and to arouse them to repentance. Therefore, at the same time, they conceive him to be angry and merciful toward them or toward their sins. For they will pray that his wrath be averted, while with tranquil confidence they nevertheless flee to him for refuge. God's anger is not like our anger. Jesus doesn't turn over the tables simply as a punishment. God is not angry at your sin out of pure vengeance. His anger is for the purpose of repentance. His anger is for the purpose of his beloved people to turn back to him. Turn back to him. You don't have to be ashamed of your sin anymore. You don't have to be filled with guilt any longer. And by the way, you don't have the right to make other people feel guilt for their sin. You don't have the right to shame other people for their sin just because it's different from yours. Can you help them? Yes. Can you encourage them? Yes. By lovingly, with sorrow and with hope, coming to them and saying, I love you. Please stop that and turn back. Please stop that and turn back to Jesus. But never with shame. Never with guilt. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those things, that hope, is what should be orienting our lives, especially our relationships here in the church. Because if we're not getting that right, if we're not helping each other, building each other up in here, we just don't even have a chance to do it well out there. Early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, 
I don't think I have to tell anyone in this room that these verses are very often taken out of context, misunderstood. Right? There are whole movements in the church that are really based solely on these verses. And, and I want to tell you, they're wrong. We have to read these verses in light of the clear teaching of Scripture on God's sovereignty and on prayer. But I don't think that's where we miss this verse. I think for the most part, in this room, we miss this verse by sweeping this verse under the rug. Jesus really said this. We have to wrestle with this. And for me, if I'm not falling on my face, begging the Lord for things, for wisdom, for healing, for perseverance, for strength, when I'm never doing those things, if you're never doing those things, if every single time you ask God for something, you feel like you have to qualify it with, oh, but your will be done. Oh, but if it doesn't happen like that, pray that we love you anyway. Oh, we know you're always faithful. If you're like me, you do that out of fear and doubt, not out of real confidence in the Lord. And that's wrong. We can get this too far the wrong way. We should be bold in prayer, really asking for things. Go read the Psalms. Go read about the way that Daniel prayed. The people in the Bible who really, really love the Lord and really, really get Him, they pray serious prayers. They ask God for big, serious things. I want us to ask God for big, serious things. To pray in faith and in confidence. God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel at work this week. God, remove that grudge from my heart that's been in there for I don't know how many years. God, help me love my children more than I love myself this week. God, help me love and feel more weight for my role in the church than my role in a chemical plant. We should pray big things. We should pray serious things because we have a powerful and loving God who listens, who loves us, who is faithful to bring us in, li- in line with his glorious purpose. As I was thinking about this and prayer and the seriousness, I, I really struggled at first with this kind of whole section to connect it back to what Jesus was doing the day before. And maybe there's just not a huge connection there. Maybe Peter really is asking about the power by which Jesus could could curse this tree. It's kind of the only uh, miracle of destruction that we see in the Gospels. And maybe he really is just telling them about the power of faithful prayer. But I, th- but I think what we can do, I think we can look at what Jesus did the day before at the tree and in the temple And I think that we can see that when when Jesus says, have faith in God, he's not doing that isolated from the day before. 
Because the problem with the temple, if we're honest with ourselves, the problem with this shiny exterior, barren interior dynamic is faithlessness. Or maybe not faithlessness, but faith in ourselves. Faith in our own merits. Faith in our own abilities. And Jesus antidote for that. The antidote for trusting in yourself. The antidote for this shell of hypocrisy is a life full of faithful prayer within a faithful community fighting every day to forgive each other and have reconciliation with each other. To have true community that builds one another up. A life filled with prayer for big things and a life filled with forgiveness for those around us. Now look, I don't, wanna, I don't want us to read these verses and think I have to just forgive and forget about everything everyone has ever done to me without any consideration for their attitude, any consideration for their sorrow and asking for that forgiveness, right? God demands repentance for forgiveness. But guys, we should be chomping at the bit to forgive people. We should be ready and waiting and love people regardless. We should be wanting to forgive people because if we have faith in God, if we wrestle and grapple with the darkness of the sin in our own hearts, and we realize the immeasurable grace that has been lavished upon us, how can we not forgive other people? How can we not forgive someone who comes and says, I have done you wrong. I have sinned against you. Please, can we move forward on our mission of growing fruit, on our mission of loving the kingdom of God? We have to. We have to. And finally, when they had left the place with the withered fig tree, they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elder, elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Then you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from human origin? Answer me. And they discussed it among themselves, thinking, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. And so they lied. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And I, I don't want to spend, spend a ton, a ton of time here. But I do think it's really important to note that that question, by what authority do you do these things, is not just a question for scribes and Pharisees 2,000 years ago. That is a question for today. And for unbelievers, it is the question. Because Jesus has made unbelievable claims. 
So you have to wrestle with, by what authority, Jesus, are you telling me I have to have faith in God? By what authority, Jesus, are you telling me that the only way to avoid condemnation in hell for all eternity is to believe in you? By what authority can you tell me how to live my life at all? Jesus, and Jesus says at the end of this passage, I'm not going to tell you. But he says, I'm not going to tell you because he knows they already know. He knows that they understand all too well exactly what John had said about him. They understand all too well what I hope we will hear today, and that is that Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah who was given all authority on heaven and on earth. They knew that there's no way he could have healed, the, healed people the way that he healed them. There's no way he could have cast out demons the way that he cast them out. There's no way that he could have forgiven sin if his authority was not a divine authority. Jesus' authority is the authority of an infinite, self-existent creator and sustainer of all things, including you. Including you. And so, we need to be living our lives under the authority of Jesus Christ. We need to be living our lives as he's laid it out for us because he has all the authority on heaven and on earth. We should be living by faith in him, in community, loving each other, encouraging each other, praying with each other, praying for one another. Not fixing up our leaves. Not working on our exterior, working on our hearts, working night and day to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. In a few moments, the band is going to come up. We're going to have the opportunity to, um, to take communion together, just like we do every week. If you're a believer in this room, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and declared him as Lord, whether you're a member of our church or not, I would invite you to take this supper with us. If you haven't done those things, I, I just ask you to sit this part out because without that, it's just, it's just a cracker and some juice. But if you haven't done those things, I, I hope that you would ask yourself some hard questions about that. If you do have any of those questions, I'm going to be in the back of the room on your left. I'll have a communion cup there for you, and I would love to, to talk to you, to pray for you, um, to do anything I can to help you answer those questions. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to come together uh, as a church family, as a faith family, in pursuit of of your kingdom, in pursuit of your glory. We do ask that as we go out into the world this week, as, as we're sent into the world to be your ambassadors, to be your conquerors, that we would do so in a life filled with faith, in a life filled with a, a, a singular desire for your kingdom, and not for frivolous things on the exterior of our lives, not on frivolous things that will fall away that are little more than vapor. 
We ask that you would change us, that you would make us to be more like you, make us to be more Christ-like, to push us forward on the path of sanctification as individuals and as families and as a church. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.